Welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing the history of destroyer escorts. Each month, a member of the USS Slater's education crew will highlight a specific destroyer escort and share the stories of the sailors who served aboard these trim but deadly ships. This episode will discuss the USS Cecil J. Doyle and her rescue of members of the USS Indianapolis sinking in August 1945. This episode was written by Cassidy Griffin and presented by me, Giordano Romano. The Cecil J. Doyle, DE-368, was a John C. Butler-class destroyer escort. She was 306 feet long, 36 feet 7 inches wide, and had a displacement of 1,350 tons. She had a draft of 13 feet 4 inches and a top speed of 24 knots or 27.6 miles per hour propelled by her 12,000 horsepower twin boilers and geared turbines. She was equipped with two 5-inch 38 caliber guns, four 40mm guns, 10 20mm guns, three 21-inch torpedo tubes, one Mark 10 Hedgehog projector, eight Mark 6 depth charge projectors, and two Mark 9 depth charge racks. Her complement was 186 men, and she primarily served in the Pacific Theater during the last six months of the war. The ship is named after Cecil John Doyle, who was born in Marshall, Minnesota on August 10, 1920. He enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve on March 26, 1941, and completed aviation training in Corpus Christi, Texas. On April 6, 1942, Doyle was appointed a second lieutenant, USMCR, and was attached to the Marine Fighting Squadron 121 in the Solomon Islands. During the Guadalcanal campaign, Doyle was noted for his extraordinary heroism before being declared missing in action on November 7, 1942. Posthumously, he was awarded the Navy Cross and was chosen to be the namesake of a destroyer escort. Doyle's destroyer escort was laid down on May 12, 1944 by the Consolidated Steel Corporation in Orange, Texas and launched on July 1st, sponsored by his mother. The ship was commissioned on October 16th at the city docks in Orange, Texas, with Lieutenant Commander Douglas S. Crocker, DEVG, USNR, in command. Five days later, around 0805, she sailed down the Sabine River into the Gulf of Mexico. During this journey, she fired batteries on all 40mm and 20mm guns and expended 24 plaster-loaded hedgehogs during a full power run. From the Gulf of Mexico, she traveled to Galveston for her fitting out period in early November. After refueling in Texas City, she sailed for Bermuda for her shakedown cruise on November 5, 1944, where she reported to Commander Task Group 23.1. Her time in Bermuda is notable, to say the least. She remained in Bermuda until the 16th, after which she got underway at around 0634 to begin her escorting duties. However, 24 minutes after leaving port, she experienced a casualty to her number one engine. She attempted to clear the channel and drop anchor, but ended up running aground off Ireland Point, Bermuda at 0716. She damaged her starboard propeller and shaft, and at around 1000, two tugs freed the ship and moved her to the anchorage in Great Sound, Bermuda. The next day, at 0725, she attempted to leave Bermuda again, this time successfully. She arrived in Boston on November 21st, and moored in the Navy Yard for repairs before entering dry dock on the 29th. On December 18th, she was launched from dry dock with a new skipper, Lieutenant Commander W. Graham Clater Jr., 
DVG USNR. Clayter was born on March 14, 1912 in Roanoke, Virginia. He graduated from the University of Virginia in 1933, then Harvard Law School in 1936, before moving to Washington, D.C. as an attorney. In 1940, at the age of 28, Clayter attempted to join the Navy, but was rejected as being too old. He was later able to join based on his experience in sports boating. He captained a subchaser, then another destroyer escort, before finally being assigned to the Cecil J. Doyle in 1944. Among the crew, Clayter was well-liked and considered personable. The captain also worked on beefing up the existing equipment aboard the ship with supplies from shore or other ships. In an interesting twist of fate, Clayter was related to the captain of the USS Indianapolis, Charles B. McVeigh III, through marriage. Through Christmas 1944, Cecil J. Doyle continued repairs and post-shakedown availability in Boston. On December 26th, she completed her dock and sea trials, and on the 28th, completed another full power run and a structural depth charge practice. Then, on the 29th, she once again was underway to Bermuda. On New Year's Eve, Doyle arrived in Bermuda and rejoined Commander Task Group 23.1. For the next two weeks, she completed 17 different exercises for training, including anti-submarine attack exercises with a 1928 Italian submarine, night illumination and night screening, exercises in passing mail and towing with another destroyer escort, the Albert T. Harris DE-447, fueling at sea exercises with the oiler Chihuahua AO-68, and shore bombardment exercises. Nearing the end of this second shakedown, the destroyer escort was underway on January 19, 1945, with the USS Biven DE-536 for Special Aircraft Rescue Patrol and was tasked with plane-guarding flights carrying Yalta-bound officials. The next day, the ship parted from Biven upon a reaching station at 34 degrees 10 minutes north, 68 degrees 15 minutes west. At station, Doyle steamed on various courses until relieved by the Coast Guard manned frigate Moberly PF-63 on January 21st at 22.50. Following more exercises with the submarine rescue vessel Escape, ARS-6, the DE underwent a departure inspection conducted by the commander of the DD DE shakedown groups on January 25th. Five days later, Doyle was underway again to meet convoy UC-53B and the British escort aircraft carrier HMS Rene. During this journey, Doyle encountered squalls of snow and sleet that reduced visibility to 500 yards in a storm rating an 8 on the Beaufort wind force scale. An 8 is described as wind gusts from 34 to 40 knots or 39 to 46 miles per hour and waves up to 18 to 25 feet high. On the last day of January, the ship made radio contact with commander of Task Unit 61.1.2 at 0800 before detaching with Rene to the Canal Zone, which she successfully crossed on February 6th. After refueling in Balboa, Panama, the Doyle met again with the British charge on February 7th around 1700 hours and set course for San Diego. On February 15th, she departed from Rene in San Diego where she was to refuel, take on supplies, and undergo repairs, before leaving on the 19th for Oahu, Hawaii. On the way to Hawaii, 
the Doyle conducted gunnery practice before being dispatched on February 24th to search for an enemy submarine around 28 degrees 27 minutes north, 144 degrees 46 minutes west. The ship arrived in the area later that day around 1450. She continued her search before reporting negative results on the 25th and proceeding towards Oahu. From Oahu, the Doyle traveled to Pearl Harbor, arriving on February 28th, then on to Aniwetok. She arrived in the South Pacific to join the Marshall's Gilbert Patrol and Escort Group on March 28th. Here, she was responsible for escorting ships to Guam and Ulithi. In April of 1945, the Doyle was stationed in Apra Harbor when the USS Indianapolis arrived for a stopover. The Indy had been struck by a kamikaze and was heading to San Francisco for repairs. Captain McVeigh asked Captain Clater to join him for lunch and suggested Clater bring along the fire control petty officer. The captain then gave Clater portable gear to augment the ship's firepower, seeing as the Indianapolis was receiving a complete overhaul back in the United States. At the end of April, the Doyle was transferred to the Carolines Surface Patrol and Escort Group, and on May 2nd, she was assigned to protect the Coastal Roads Anchorage near the Palau Islands. The islands were used by the U.S. Navy as a resupply and repair base, and with this new assignment, Clater became the commander screen, Pelilu Anguar. During this mission, the Doyle was responsible for rescuing several downed aviators, and on May 27th, she bombarded a Japanese garrison on Karora Island. She was responsible for protecting the passage between Guam and Leyte, known as the Petty Convoy Route. Due to the high Allied traffic, it had become a popular station for Japanese submarines. In addition to the Doyle, the line was patrolled by the USS Ringness, APD-100, Register, APD-92, Bassett, APD-73, Dulifo, DE-423, French, DE-367, Cockrell, DE-398, Ralph Talbot, DD-390, Aylwin, DD-355, and Helm, DD-388, with support from the naval airbase on Peleliu. Many of these ships were still in the area in early August, when the Indianapolis's sinking became known. The USS Indianapolis was a heavy cruiser built in 1930 and was considered a ship of state, having been used for diplomatic missions since her commissioning. She was 610 feet long, with a top speed of 32.7 knots, or 37.6 miles per hour, propelled by four Parsons reduction steam turbines. For armament after her repair in San Francisco, she had nine 8-inch guns, eight 5-inch guns, two 3-pounder 47mm guns, six quad 40mm guns, and 19 single 20mm guns. She was designed to have a complement of 952 sailors, but was able to hold 1,269 during the war. She also had the ability to carry three floatplanes and two amidship catapults, though the starboard catapult was removed in 1945. During the war, she led a fleet of bombardment ships in the Pacific. Despite her size, she only had a displacement of 9,950 long tons, just under an international agreement from 1921 limiting ships to remain under 10,000 tons displaced. This limit meant that extra protection in the form of blisters was not installed. On March 31, 1945, the Indianapolis was struck by a kamikaze, forcing her to return to San Francisco for repairs. 
In July 1945, she was ready to return to the Pacific with Captain Charles B. McVeigh III in command. While in harbor, she was tasked with a secret mission from President Truman transport the atomic cores for Fat Man and Little Boy to Tinian near Guam. The mission was of the utmost importance, and all leave was cancelled. The cargo, consisting of a large black box and two smaller black cylinders, was loaded with two artillery army officers present and had a 24-hour marine guard. The cargo was stored in port hangar and was almost too heavy for the onboard crane to move. The ship left California on July 15th and set the speed record for her trip to Pearl Harbor. They were not in port long, just long enough to resupply and refuel before setting off for Tinian, arriving on July 26th, breaking another record. Because of the low tide at Tinian, the Indianapolis was assisted by a barge that removed the cargo. The two small cylinders, about 24 inches long by 18 inches in diameter, weighed about 200 pounds each and were removed by hand by Indy's crew. After Tinian, she was to travel to Leyte for 17 days of training in preparation for the final stages of the Pacific Campaign. The ship left Guam about 0900 on July 28th. Despite Guam being near the Japanese sub-base on Yap Island and the USS Underhill, DE-682, being sunk in the area on the 24th, the Indianapolis was not provided escort protection. The ship was to travel along the Petty Line and cross from Nimitz's command into Kincaid's command. Once in Leyte, she was to join the USS Idaho. Along the way, Captain McVeigh requested target-towing aircraft to cross paths for a training exercise. The ship never made contact with those planes and never arrived in Leyte. On July 29th, around midnight, the Indy was traveling at a modest speed, with her bulkheads open for ventilation and many men choosing to sleep topside due to the hot, humid weather. She was moving steadily, not performing any evasive maneuvers when she was spotted through the periscope of the Japanese sub I-58. The sub was commanded by Lieutenant Commander Mochitsura Hashimoto, who fired two torpedoes into the ship at 11.55. The torpedoes caused fires below deck. The ship's bow was blown off, causing her to pitch starboard with her fantail rising rapidly. Captain McVeigh ordered the bugler to blow abandoned ship but the bugler misinterpreted the order and jumped overboard. Men who were topside attempted to cut down life rafts, but the ship's list to about 90 degrees starboard made getting them into the water impossible. The men who managed to escape below decks were placed in life jackets and thrown overboard, most only wearing their skivvies made up of t-shirts and shorts. With the propellers still running, the ship dived forcing men to swim from the wreck to avoid being caught in the downward suction. Twelve minutes after impact, on Sunday, July 30th, the ship was sunk, carrying some 300 men with her. Her final coordinates were around 11 degrees, 34 minutes north, 133 degrees, 47 minutes east. Thousands of gallons of bunker oil floated on the surface, covering survivors. Those without flotation devices relied on their crewmates who worked to keep them afloat. In an effort to not drift apart, the men hooked their jackets together and placed those without jackets in the center of the group for protection. If a floater net was available, the most injured would sit on top, but there were not enough life jackets or floater nets for all the men in the water. Sailors removed their waterlogged shoes to prevent them from weighing them down, and clothing from the deceased were given to those in skivvies 
in an attempt to keep them warm. Lieutenant Commander Dr. Lewis L. Haynes, the ship's doctor, worked to provide assistance to those in the water, giving advice to those he came across. First guideline, refrain from drinking the seawater. Second guideline, check on each other overnight. Third guideline, perform roll call in the morning. Despite these precautions, many survivors were lost that first night due to burns, injuries, or drowning. Haynes checked on unresponsive sailors and, if found deceased, would call on everyone to recite a prayer before unhooking their life jacket. In the morning, the sun began to beat down on the men, forcing many to improvise sun protection with torn up clothing or by covering themselves in the bunker oil that surrounded them. Despite the growing list of problems, spirits remained high that first night and into the morning, as many men believed they would be rescued by Tuesday after the Indy would fail to arrive at Leyte. By the end of day two, that Tuesday, concerns began to set in. The groups of survivors started drifting apart, eventually being spread out over 25 square miles of ocean and from 55 to 80 miles from the spot of the sinking. Tuesday also brought sharks. The sharks were attracted to the deceased bodies, and once they were gone, they began bumping into the men's legs. When a sailor passed, they would be pushed from the group to prevent shark attacks, as larger sharks grew more aggressive as time went on. Barracudas and jellyfish also started to congregate in the area. On day three, some sailors began experiencing hallucinations, causing some to try to dive to the ship or swim to imaginary islands. Their Capic life jackets, rated for 48 hours of immersion, were beginning to fail, and it became difficult to keep one's mouth above the water. Sharks, in search of food, began dragging sailors under the surface. By the end of Thursday, many were resigned to their fates. No one was coming. Even men who jumped into the water without injuries struggled with the conditions. From the hot sun to developing saltwater ulcers, there was not enough medication, food, or water for all of the survivors. Severe sunburn meant that skin was blistered and could stick together. Oil caused vision problems that were compounded by the endless sun reflecting off of the water. Men began blindfolding themselves with scraps of fabric to provide any relief. All wounds, whether they were ulcers or otherwise, became infected. At night, once the sun went down, the ocean became chilly, leading many to develop fevers. Due to clerical error, the Indy had an extra order of life jackets, which saved many men during those first few nights. However, as the life jackets became waterlogged, the men found themselves in a predicament. Either struggle to keep your head above the water while being weighed down, potentially to the point of drowning, or attempt to remain buoyant without a jacket. With the life jackets failing, men were forced to remain awake to prevent themselves from inadvertently sinking below the surface. Around day three, men began fighting over life jackets in an attempt to find ones not as waterlogged, to keep themselves awake, or to make up for imaginary slights. This delirium became widespread, with an estimated 40 to 50% of the survivors suffering from hallucinations. Adding to the risk of hallucinations was the ingestion of salt water, accidental or not. Sailors made themselves vomit if they ingested either salt water or bunker oil. But as time went on and the men became more thirsty, it became more and more tempting to drink the salt water around them. If a sailor gave in to the temptation, 
they would develop hypernatremia or high concentration of salt in the blood. The condition develops quickly, killing sailors in three to four hours. After an hour of drinking salt water, the men would begin to mumble and thrash about. They would hallucinate, and many begin to drink more and more water to conquer their growing thirst and stop the stomach pangs. Their tongues would begin to swell, and many choked or had seizures, killing them. There were 1,197 men aboard the Indy on the night of the attack. Over 800 men managed to abandon ship before the ship sank beneath the water. Five nights later, the number of survivors had dropped to 316 men. Because of this massive loss of life, the USS Indianapolis sinking is considered to be the greatest disaster in the history of the U.S. Navy. The sailors in the water reported that planes flew overhead consistently for the five days, but it was not until August 2nd that the men were discovered. Lieutenant Junior Grade Wilbur C. Gwynn was testing a new trailing radio aerial aboard his PV Ventura. The aerial antenna snapped due to the wind, prompting Gwynn to transfer control to his co-pilot and head aft to assist his crew. Gwynn pulled up the antenna and attached a rubber hose in the hopes of weighing the antenna down when he noticed oil in the water. Oil was usually a sign of a submarine charging its batteries as they pump out the ballast tanks to rise to the surface. However, upon closer inspection, this was no sub. The oil was heavier and in a much greater quantity. Gwyn retook control and descended. He was astonished to see men frantically waving their arms. Gwyn and his crew dropped all their life jackets, an emergency raft, and a waterproof radio called a Gibson Girl. However, due to low fuel, they could not stay in the area much longer. Later, Gwyn recalls that at this time, he was not under the impression that a major U.S. ship had sunk and believed the men were from ditched B-29s returning from a raid on Japan. Still, the Ventura's crew radioed that there were ducks on the pond as an urgent message at 11.25. This message was decoded by Lieutenant Commander George C. Atterbury, who immediately made plans to relieve Gwyn and send more planes to the area. Atterbury directed his men on Peleliu to grab supplies and prepare their PV Venturas and amphibious PBYs, also known as Catalina flying boats. Atterbury took off at 12.25 and continued to communicate with Gwyn, who radioed there were more pockets of survivors. Lieutenant R. Adrian Marks was one of the men under Atterbury. His crew left Peleliu around 12.42 in a PBY Dumbo for the hour and 50 minute trip. After receiving more messages about more survivors, Marks made visual with Atterbury before 1600 and planned to concentrate supplies around the bigger pockets, dropping rafts, ration kits, and life jackets. Around 1630, Marks, in a feat of bravery, decided to land his PBY on the open ocean to save more men with oversight from Atterbury. Despite fighting 12-foot waves and taking hull damage from the landing, Marks and his crew set out to rescue the most seriously wounded. They managed to take on board 56 men, with some lashed to the wings to prevent them from sliding back into the water. The PBY was damaged beyond repair. Other crews and pilots over radio and in person gave information about survivors to those on Leyte in the air facility. Urgent messages about the number of survivors filled the airwaves, and one radio man transmitted up-to-date information for 11 hours from his plane. In preparation for naval ships, 
aircrafts began marking water with smoke and dyes to aid rescue. Overall, up to 36 26-foot lifeboats were dropped from the fuselages of B-17 air-sea rescue planes, and after the end of the war, air medals from the USAAF were awarded to these air crews, including wins and marks for their effort in the rescue operation. During the time of the discovery, the Cecil J. Doyle was moving in a southwesterly course towards Peleliu. Around 1430, Lieutenant Commander Clater spotted a PBY on an opposite course. He messaged the plane on voice radio and discovered the pilot was Marks, his Indiana lawyer acquaintance. Marks reported the men in the water and told Clater he would likely receive orders to head to the site about 200 miles ahead. Despite his orders to proceed to Peleliu and a lower-than-desired fuel tank, Clater directed the crew to make a 180-degree turn and steam at flank speed to the site, leaving an hour and a half before the ship received their official orders. Moving at 20 knots per hour, the trip would take the ship about 10 hours to complete. Clater felt that there was no time to spare and pushed the ship to its limits, ordering the boiler's safety valves to be tied down and the engines to be run at full speed. In spite of shafts running so hot, they needed to be hosed down with water to keep them from blowing their bearings. At around 2300 hours on August 2nd, Doyle's radar picked up Mark's plane floating on the ocean. Clater set his sights to get as close to the Dumbo as possible without injuring any of the men in the water. Clater also, in an act of bravery that could have seen him court-martialed, directed both 24-inch searchlights to be turned on. The port arc searchlight was to be aimed forward to guide the ship around potential survivors, while the starboard arc searchlight was to be aimed at the sky to give survivors hope. Men in the water reported seeing the ship's lights around 2315, some as far as 60 miles away. One survivor, Joe Caselica, said, When I first saw those beams light low and far on the horizon, I thought I had died and was going to go to leave on one of those beams. Then, I realized it must be a ship. If we could just hang on for another night, we might make it. We must not sleep. We must keep our faces out of the water for one more night. Planes dropped parachute flares to help guide the Cecil J. Doyle to Marx's PBY. The ship officially arrived at the scene at 0015 on August 3rd, five nights after the sinking of the Indianapolis. The Doyle was the first ship there, followed shortly by the USS Dufillo and the USS Bassett. Clater directed his men to prepare the motor whaleboat, line the rails with lookouts, and to gather food, medical supplies, and clothing for survivors. Within 15 minutes of their arrival, the motor whaleboat was in the water to begin transferring men from Marx's damaged aircraft onto the ship. Shortly thereafter, as survivors were brought aboard the ship, information about the sinking was discovered. Lieutenant Commander Dr. Haynes made his way to the bridge to tell the Doyle's crew that the Indianapolis was sunk four days prior. The Doyle's communications officer, Lieutenant James A. Fife Jr., was tasked with sending out the first definitive message of the Indianapolis's fate around 0300 on August 3rd. We are picking up survivors of USS Indianapolis, torpedoed and sunk Sunday night. Urgently request surface and air assistance, and make it secret and top priority. The message was addressed to Vice Admiral Murray, Commander, Marianas, 
who ordered Guam to clear the air and take off at once. Upon hearing of Ship's name, Claytor was concerned about the fate of his distant relative, who he had just met earlier that, that year, Captain McVeigh. Dr. Haynes said he saw McVeigh soon after the vessel sank, but he hadn't seen him since. Later in the rescue, Claytor learned McVeigh, one of the last men rescued, was safe and aboard the Ringness. Claytor was relieved. Around the same time as that urgent message, a raft with 10 men was recovered and around 0400, a lone sailor was picked up. However, shortly thereafter, the Doyle picked up a sonar contact. In response, Claytor turned off the searchlights and retreated from the area in an effort to protect the men in the water. Quickly, it was determined that it was not a submarine, meaning rescue operations could continue. Around 0445, the sun began to rise as the Doyle's crew rescued another six men before starting to pick up another 22 survivors just 10 minutes later. A cargo net was slung over the fantail with six crew members waiting to assist survivors onto the ship. If the survivors were unable to climb, either a wire basket or a canvas with two lines were used as a sling. After over six hours of searching, the ship's motor whaleboat was hoisted out of the water and the Doyle proceeded slowly, searching the area for any more survivors. Claytor himself stood on a platform above the flying bridge to direct the ship. The ship continued to search the area in the standard Navy expanded box search pattern, working in tandem with the other ships that arrived on the scene. Overall, the ship rescued 37 men plus the 56 from Mark's Dumbo for a total of 93 sailors. In a separate trip, all of the supplies and crew members from Marx's plane were brought aboard before the plane was scuttled by the ship's 40mm guns around 0730. Of the 11 ships that participated in the rescue, the majority were destroyer escorts or former destroyer escorts turned into high-speed transports. In addition to the Cecil J. Doyle, the USS Dufillo, DE-423, Alvin C. Cockrell, DE-366, French, DE-376, USS Bassett, XDE-672, APD-73, Register, XDE-233, APD-92, and Ringness, XDE-590, APD-100. Other ships that aided in the missions were the Madison, DD-425, Ralph Talbot, DD-390, Aylwin, DD-355, and the Helm, DD-388. With the help of aircraft providing information about survivors and their location, these ships rescued 316 men. The survivors aboard the ship were treated with the utmost care. Their names were recorded before they were given baths and bunks and provided with clean clothes and food. Every man who was not on watch attended to the survivors' needs. The survivors were fragile, many suffering from sunburns, saltwater ulcers, dehydration, pneumonia, infected wounds, and general inflammation of the nose and throat. Sailors struggled to move survivors without hurting them further, and pharmacist mates worked around the clock to tend to these injuries. Many survivors were unable to stand due to leg cramps and weak constitution. To clean off the bunker oil, survivors were washed with kerosene, but even after that, the oil continued to stain clothing and bedsheets. An example of this care was reported by one survivor, Paul McGinnis. During the ship's journey to Palau, crew members were handing out ice cream to survivors. 
When it was discovered that he was left out, a Doyle crew member readily gave up his ice cream. If that sailor were alive today, I'd love to thank him again for that blessed ice cream. About noon on that Thursday, Doyle requested and received permission to leave for Peleliu to discharge survivors, refuel, and resupply before returning to the area. They steamed at full speed along with the Bassett, Ringness, and Register, arriving around 0400 on August 4th. Survivors were disembarked to await the arrival of the USS Tranquility AH-14. Most of the survivors spent a week in a base hospital on Samar before being taken to a Guam via a C-47 cargo plane, but some of the more injured sailors remained in a submarine rest camp for two weeks before being moved to the United States. After the survivors were discharged, the Doyle's crew spent the rest of the day cleaning and resupplying. However, there was no oiler in Peleliu. Clater, using the signal lamp, messaged a merchant ship to stand by to receive us alongside to take on fuel. When the merchant ship refused, Clater used the ship's forward 5-inch 38 caliber gun to persuade the merchant ship to receive their lines. With the ship refueled, the Doyle returned to the site of the sinking to begin the most difficult part of their mission. The quartermaster of the Cockrell, George Clark, recalls, The sea was awash with corpses to all horizons. We were ordered to retrieve corpses, determine identification if possible, and effect a burial at sea. Whatever personal items were recovered were brought to the quartermaster of the watch, who recorded them in the rough deck log along with the position the body was buried. All the rescue ships, except for the Bassett, were ordered to perform burial duties for the approximately 550 bodies that remained in the area of the sinking. The mission was a difficult one, but necessary. The sea had to be cleared of debris to prevent constant spotting of the same shipwreck. Once again, with assistance from aircrafts from Peleliu, the ships set off to recover and bury the bodies of their fellow sailors. Information about the burial details were difficult to obtain, with many sailors refusing to talk about this aspect of the mission. Most information going forward comes from the deck logs from the Cecil J. Doyle and general burial at sea practices. On Monday, August 6th, two unidentified bodies and nine deceased crew members were recovered and buried near 11 degrees, 31 minutes north, 132 degrees, 24 minutes east. On the 7th, the ship widened its search with the French and recovered five unidentified bodies. These men were buried at 11 degrees, 13 minutes north, 132 degrees, 8 minutes east. The next day, she continued her search with the French per Comwest Car Sub Area Dispatch dated August 8th, but did not find any more of the deceased. The ship did recover floating debris, which was either sunk or picked up, and exploded a 400 to 500 pound mine. Over the three days, sailors continued to fight with sharks, and many sharks were killed by gunner's mates when they traveled too close to the motor whaleboat. In the motor whaleboat, one to two bodies could be recovered at a time, and up to six could be placed on the deck to be identified. Many of the deceased were missing body parts. Because so few had wallets or dog tags, identification was completed using birthmarks, tattoos, scars, and dental records. Some were never identified, but all were committed to the deep with a prayer and honor. Sea burials are similar to most Christian burials. 
There was a small vigil made up of sailors, the commanding officer, or a chaplain says a few words in honor of the deceased, and the sailors recite a prayer. The deceased, who were placed in a weighted canvas or mattress covers, are covered by an American flag and lowered into the sea. The navigation officer marks the position of the burial for the family. One man from every department was assigned burial duty, and most were around the ages of the sailors they were burying. With the French, the Cecil J. Doyle gave final rites to 21 sailors and remained in the area until all deceased crew were buried and all debris was sunk. After their mission, tending to the crew of the USS Indianapolis concluded, the Doyle continued their efforts in the Pacific Ocean. Later in August, she helped evacuate POWs from Wakayama, Japan, and sank floating mines cut loose by minesweepers off Japanese harbors. She also screened carriers, providing air cover for the landing of occupation troops. Following Japan's surrender, she suffered through two typhoons before sailing into Buckner Bay in Okinawa on August 26th for occupation duty. Through mid-November 1945, the Doyle cruised on courier duty between Japanese ports before being dry docked in Yokosuka. After repairs, she sailed for San Francisco, arriving on January 13, 1946. On July 2nd of that same year, the Cecil J. Doyle was decommissioned and placed into reserve. Exactly 11 years and 5 months later, she was sunk as a target during live fire practice. Her captain, Lieutenant Commander Clater, continued a successful career in the Navy, rising to the position of Secretary of the Navy and Deputy Secretary of Defense from 1977 to 1981. In these positions, Clater was noted for his progressive views in support of women's and gay rights. After 1981, Clater became the railroad executive and led Amtrak for 11 years. Captain Clater died on May 14, 1994. Despite seeing through the end to the Cecil J. Doyle's career, it does not feel appropriate to conclude without making a note of everything that happened after the Indianapolis' sinking. Days after the survivors were discovered, the first of two atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th, followed by the second atomic bomb on Nagasaki on August 9th. Many survivors who finally learned about the nature of the cargo they transported to Tinian felt conflicted about their part in these bombings. Some mentioned sadness about the massive loss of life, and others felt comfort from their efforts in ending the Second World War. The U.S. Navy, understanding the wider implications of the loss of a famed heavy cruiser, waited to announce the sinking until August 15th, also known as Victory Over Japan Day. With the news of Japan's surrender being plastered over newspapers across the globe, the sinking of the Indy was not covered extensively, mostly as a small story on the front page of a few newspapers. Despite the lack of coverage, the public was incensed about the significant loss of life at the end of the war. In addition, many questioned why the Navy did not know where the heavy cruiser was for five days. After the sinking, due to a change in protocol for announcing ship's arrival on Leyte, Navy higher-ups were under the impression the Indy was still en route or safely in port. Even after an intercepted message from I-58's Hashimoto reported the sinking of a U.S. ship of Idaho battleship class was decoded, the Navy made no movement towards investigating the matter. When Captain McVeigh inquired about the long delay, the Navy responded that he never sent out the SOS message despite the ship 
being under strict radio silence. Declassified records later showed three messages were received, but not acted upon for various reasons. McVeigh was blamed for these lapses in communications. As a result, the sinking was investigated and McVeigh was court-martialed, the only commanding officer court-martialed for losing his ship during an act of war. Despite Admiral Nimitz's recommendation that the captain should only be issued a letter of reprimand, Admiral Ernest King and Secretary of the Navy James Forrestal moved forward with the trial. The trial concerned two charges, suffering his vessel to be hazarded by failing to zigzag and failure to order abandoned ship in a timely manner. After a trial in December 1945, which included testimony from Commander Hashimoto, McVeigh was convicted of not zigzagging. The survivors of the sinking were unanimous in their belief that the conviction was unjust, and in a conversation with a survivor, Nimitz stated that the entire affair was a mistake. In the years since, analysis has poked many holes into the trial. Due to the nature of the Indies' secret mission and gaps in intelligence, Captain McVeigh was not informed about potential enemy submarines along the Petty Route, despite the route's proximity to Yap Island, a known Japanese sub-base, and the sinking of the USS Underhill six days prior. Even with this information, by the end of July 1945, the Japanese Imperial Navy was struggling to maintain control around Japan, and many believed the Philippine Sea would be relatively safe from enemy action. This, combined with the routing order for the Indianapolis, stating McVeigh has the authority to zigzag at his discretion, made this charge seem ill-placed, especially since McVeigh had ordered the ship to zigzag during the night, only stopping late at night when he believed the visibility was poor. Hashimoto's testimony also adds another layer to this charge. While Hashimoto did acknowledge the ship was not zigzagging, he stated it would not have mattered. If the first two torpedoes missed, the sub would have fired another salvo. Even for the US Navy, an enemy ship zigzagging did not guarantee protection from a submarine, something corroborated by the 4,000 ships sunk by US submarines over the course of the war. While the conviction has justification in law, something McVeigh acknowledged in a statement to the New York Times right after the sinking when he said, I was in command of the ship and I am responsible for its fate. Opinion has firmly agreed that the conviction was unjust. In accordance with this belief, the punishment for the charge was very light. Those in charge of the trial were unanimous in recommending the reviewing authority exercise clemency. In the end, McVeigh was set back in line for promotion, but even this punishment did not last long. As Admiral King recommended the sentence be set aside when McVeigh retired in 1949. Secretary Forrestal agreed, and McVeigh was promoted to Rear Admiral, as was tradition in that era. Despite support from his sailors and his early accolades during the war, which included a silver star for bravery under fire, McVeigh was haunted by the sinking of the Indy, and the responsibility placed on his shoulders. In November 1968, McVeigh took his own life. In the years following, survivors and many others fought to have McVeigh's name cleared. Involved in this effort was Commander Hashimoto, who became a Shinto priest after the war at a shrine in Kyoto. In 1999, he wrote a letter 
to the Senate Armed Services Committee, where he reiterated that even if the ship had been zigzagging, Indy's fate would be the same. He also noted, Our peoples have forgiven each other for that terrible war and its consequences. Perhaps it is time your peoples forgave Captain McVeigh for the humiliation of his unjust conviction. This letter, combined with the continued push from survivors to exonerate Captain McVeigh, resulted in a resolution being passed by Congress and signed by President Clinton in late 2000. Under the direction of the newly appointed Secretary of the Navy, George England, Captain William J. Toddy, the former commanding officer of the submarine named in the Indianapolis's honor, the exoneration language was added into McVeigh's service record in May 2001. The bravery exhibited by the USS Cecil J. Doyle and the other ships involved in the rescue efforts is indicative of the bravery shown by sailors across the U.S. Navy during World War II. Despite the tragedy of the Indianapolis, the rescue operations show the best of the Navy, and the ships should be remembered for their dedication to saving survivors and burying the deceased. All destroyer escorts have a story, and DE Classified is committed to sharing those stories in memory of these sailors and the countless lives they saved. Thank you for listening to DE Classified. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org slash declassified. We hope to see you next month when we cover in a special podcast the life of Frank Slater and his actions aboard the USS San Francisco in November 1942.